All right, let's shuffle on to Sydney. What sort of options are available? Well, Sydney's an interesting one because it's a bit of a unicorn for a uh, you know five hundred thousand dollar house in Sydney. But uh, you can go out to Leppington or Riverstone and, and be able to buy at least the land for that price. All it's right, a terrific option. Still bag a bargain. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Hello, my name is Jan Wisniewski and this is The Strike, a podcast thinking about issues in Australia with a long-term in mind. Earlier this year, I talked to economist Sol Eslek about policies that have led to the decline in home ownership in Australia, and he suggested some ideas to improve housing affordability. One way to reduce upward pressure on housing prices in Australia would be to cut negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount. This relates to Sol's key argument, the governments in Australia need to focus less on inflating the demand for housing and more on increasing the supply. If that sounds interesting, go back and have a listen. Sol makes use of his dulcet tones to present a pretty convincing argument. I was still interested in examining the Australian housing market to see what other ideas are out there. Fortunately, writer and researcher Peter Mayers did the hard work for me. He's got a new book out through text publishing in which he explores Australia's housing problems and offers up some practical solutions. These solutions present a future where home ownership and renting are treated equally, which provides a refreshing change to how we currently think about housing. Have a listen now to my chat with Peter Mayers. We can get underway if you like. Sure. Cool. You've released uh, through text publishing your investigation into the Australian housing market no place like home repairing Australia's housing crisis. So first of all, I just wanted to know why you call it a crisis and what sort of criteria you're basing that on. Yeah, so I use the word crisis um, advisedly because, you know, in the media we tend to, everything tends to be a crisis and we throw that word crisis around very easily. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about the crisis in Australian housing, well, when that's discussed in the media, the crisis is usually presented as a crisis of housing affordability. That is the ability of first home buyers to get into the market and buy their own home, especially uh-huh. um, in Sydney and Sydney and Melbourne. But that to me is not the real crisis. To me, the real crisis is elsewhere. The real crisis is firstly in homelessness, which as we know has gone up yep. from 103,000 to 116,000 between the last two censuses and which You know, we all see anyone who lives, well, probably anywhere sees homelessness. Um, so that's, that's the real crisis. And Mm -hmm. the other aspect of the crisis is people in private rental accommodation. So people renting in the private market who are experiencing what's called housing stress. Now, housing stress means you're spending 30% or more of your household disposable income on the rent alone. Yeah. And many people spend much more than that, 50% or more. And when you're spending that bigger proportion of your and, and you're on a low income, when you're spending a big proportion of a low income like that on housing or rent, then that's money you don't have for other essentials, food or heating or electricity bills or mm-hmm. sending your kids on a school excursion or going to the dentist or, or all those things. And that that hasn't, you know, if it's long term, has a profound impact on well-being. So that's yeah. the real crisis I'm talking about. Okay, so... There's two things in there that I like to unpack. I guess first um, on homelessness. On a previous episode, I had Dr. Heather Holst when she was working as a deputy CEO of Launch Housing in Victoria. She suggested that the greatest cause of homelessness in Australia 
relates to housing supply. So she was arguing that a lack of affordable homes lies at the root of many problems uh, faced by homeless people. Does that seem on the money to you? Yeah, I would put it slightly differently in that. Um, so the chapter in my book where I talk about this is called It's Not Always About Housing. And so the the causes, the triggers of homelessness mm-hmm. are often other things. So it might be um, domestic violence, which is a, a big trigger of homelessness. It might be um, mental illness or uh, addiction. Mm-hmm. And these things are not, you know, these things often overlap. So someone who's been a victim of family violence may also have addiction issues or may have a mental illness and, and the, the things may be interconnected. Yeah. But any solution, I mean, attempting to resolve the problem of their homelessness always requires providing, pro- finding affordable accommodation. And then I totally agree with Heather yeah. Holst, there's a total lack of affordable accommodation. So you can't resolve people's homelessness, even though you know, it may not have been triggered by, uh, it, it may indeed, of course, be triggered by, triggered by being kicked out of um, a long-term rental and not being able to afford a new one. So it can be triggered by, by housing affordability directly as well, and I should say that. But off, I mean, the, 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 even if it's triggered by something else, like a relationship breakdown, the problem is then there is nothing, there is nothing there for people. There are no affordable rentals. Um, you know, Anglicare does a, rental affordability snapshot every every year. They survey 67,000 online listings of properties and their surveys found um, for a single person on the minimum wage, fewer than 3% of properties were affordable. For a, any single person on any Centrelink payment, by, be it New Start or Youth Allowance or um, Disability Pension, yeah. there's nothing. There's just nothing affordable. Yeah. And why do you suggest that is? Is it purely economic reasoning preventing us from having better policies? Well, the, the question of supply is a really hard one to unpack. Mm-hmm. So that, let me, and I'm not sure I totally get to the root of it, though I do explore this issue. So um, there's many factors. The, the mainstream economic argument is that we haven't built enough housing. So we've had a lot of, we've had rapid population growth, which of course increases demand for housing. But the construction industry or, or the development industry hasn't responded quickly enough uh, by building up supply. That's the standard economic argument, and therefore we can fix these problems by just building more, you know, release more land on the city fringes, yep. get rid of development control so that uh, more high-rises or apartments can be built, and and then the problem will take care of itself mm-hmm. because richer people will move into these newer, flashier houses and they will move out of their old houses and someone a bit poorer will move into their old house and someone poorer still will move into their old house and there'll be cheaper houses becoming available that people who are renting will be able to afford. The simple fix. And simple fix. Mm. But, but I don't buy that theory, partly because no one – there's a huge argument about how much housing we've been building and whether we've been building enough. Yeah. So in some places like central Melbourne – We've been building a lot of new housing in the form of high-rise apartments, but that doesn't seem to have addressed homelessness. Mm-hmm. And and I think if we look at it the from the perspective of other factors that fuel demand and make housing expensive, then we can see things like investor demand for housing. So, you know, investors who use negative gearing and seeking mm-hmm. uh, um, the benefits of the tax discount on capital gains on property that you get, 
they're competing in the market for the same houses as first home buyers, and that pushes up the price. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We also have historic low interest rates, and they've been low for a very long time. Uh, and so that makes it cheaper to borrow money. So people feel they can borrow more, take on larger debt. And again, that pushes prices. Um, and then, you know, as people get wealthier, they buy more housing. They buy bigger houses or they buy second mm-hmm. houses. So that, you know, also affects demand if people are consuming two houses, you know, or, or if they've got a, you know, an apartment in Melbourne that they use when they come a few times a year and they just keep it there because it's convenient. Yeah. So, there's lots of factors that affect demand and supply of housing. Um, and the, the, the third thing I'd say, the key thing is, and it's noticeable all around Australia, that we have not been investing in what's called social housing. Mm-hmm. So social housing is housing that's offered to people on low incomes at a fixed proportion of their income. So no more than 20, they pay 25% of their income in rent. So people on the pension, yeah. people on benefits of various sorts. Australia, about 8% of Australian housing used to be social housing. Now it's down to 4.2%. Okay. Um, so state country governments haven't been building enough of um, social housing. And uh, whether that's housing that's owned by the state or owned by community sector organisations, we need to build more of that to really provide a safety, a supply for people at the bottom end of the, bottom end of the income scale. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Looking at the, the market on a bit of a wider scale, and I, I guess I've heard it many times in my life that the, the Australian dream is to own your own home. Through your research uh, for the book, did you kind of find that this dream might be over? Well, first of all, we need to question that dream a little bit. Um, so until um, the Second World War, ownership, or until after the Second World War, home ownership in Australia was only at around 50%. Okay. So it's not the case that we've always been a nation of, of, of homeowners. That's one thing to say. Uh, the second is that we became a notion, a nation of homeowners very rapidly in that post-war period under Robert Menzies. So we went from being about 50% of us owning homes to about 72% of us owning homes in a space of about 20 years. And that at the same time as we had mass migration and a baby boom. So it's a pretty amazing yeah. thing that happened. And it didn't just happen because that's what everyone wanted. It happened because Robert Menzies, as Prime Minister, deliberately encouraged it. And he encouraged it partly for ideological reasons because, you know, people were concerned about the red menace and the growing communism and all the rest of it. And Menzies' view was that homeowners will be good, upstanding citizens. And indeed, this view was shared by the Labor Party at the time. It's not, it wasn't. It, you know, it was a cross-party view. So, but Menzies in particular brought in a whole lot of measures that facilitated home ownership, allowing people in public housing to buy their own homes, subsidise interest rates on mortgages. Um, you know, particularly for veterans and so on and so forth. Yeah, it probably shows my uh, naivety in my youth that uh, I didn't really realise that it was policy-driven and uh, based on ideology well, at the time. Yeah. Well, but also I think, you know, there are benefits of home ownership and I wouldn't deny that. I mean, you know, owning your own place has benefits because you have control over it, you can't be kicked out, um, you can do what you like to it. Um, but what people want above all, and so people will pay for home ownership. I mean, they will, they will save hard for it and they'll save up for it and they'll work hard on fixing their house up and all the rest of it. 
But at the moment in Australia, we subsidise home ownership and we subsidise it through the tax system. So if I make a big capital windfall gain on, on my own home, as I have done, mm-hmm. then I don't pay any that's all. Now, that gain is not because I did a fabulous renovation or I worked really hard. The gain is because the value of the land since under my house has gone up. It's not my effort. Now, I, I don't pay any tax on that. I don't pay any tax on what's called the imputed rent. So if I didn't own my own home, I'd have to pay rent. So the fact that I own my own home means that in, in this essence, I'm getting an income stream of free rent. And in some countries, that would be taken into account and taxed. So... And if I, you know, uh, when I get old, if I, um, I can live in a $5 million home and still get the pension, there's no, it doesn't affect my pension entitlement. So there's a whole lot of ways in which we encourage people to invest in housing and subsidize it in home ownership. And we, we don't need to. Um, and I think what, what renters want more than anything. Uh, uh, is housing security. They want they want to be able to live in a house and not be kicked out at a moment's notice. Yep. They want to know they can have pictures, have a pet, paint the wall if they want to, or negotiate with the, the landlord about what colour the wall should be and that yep. sort of thing. Yeah, well, apart from these better conditions for renters, have you kind of come across a way that we can reduce the rental stress that we're talking about on a purely financial basis? Well, yeah, so so better conditions for renters would would help the questions of insecurity of tenancy, but it doesn't address uh, the cost of renting. Mm-hmm. And renting renting hasn't gone up as much as, you know, the cost of housing. And renting would, the cost of the rental stress would be much higher still if not for Commonwealth rent assistance, yep. which is a subsidy that government pays to people on benefits, the federal government pays to people on benefits to help them cover their rent. But that rent assistance is capped. Um, so one way to help renters would be to increase rent assistance to, to you know, lift it to a higher level. Mm-hmm. But my argument would be, uh, and, and, you know, I have no objection to doing that, mm-hmm. but equally uh, we need to, in my view, increase the supply of affordable housing, especially well-located affordable mm-hmm. housing. So both social housing for those at the very bottom of the income ladder, so generally people on, on benefits of one kind or another, and also housing for people on low income, so people who are working but on, on low incomes. Uh, and we can do that in various ways. So you can do it by requiring developers to include a proportion of uh, affordable housing uh, in any new development, so housing that is always there for rent mm-hmm. at a subsidy, you know, 80% of the market level or something like that, market rate. Uh, you can... Um, you can build more social housing, which then you know increases supply and takes pressure off the bottom end of the private rental market. Also helps create minimum conditions. Mm-hmm. So it is about increasing the supply of affordable affordable housing at the bottom end, social and affordable housing. Yeah. So I just wanted to go back to when you mentioned the Menzies era, the idea of fear influencing housing policy. Now we have people coming from overseas to live in Australia and foreign investment, which is potentially sometimes used as a scapegoat. Mm. But what did you discover about the effects of immigration and foreign investment on the housing market in Australia? So let's separate those two things out. Foreign investment is one thing, immigration is another, although they might overlap. So foreign investment I don't think is having a huge impact on cost and supply because 
foreign investors can only buy new housing. So by definition, every time a foreign investor buys the residential property in Australia, they are creating a new property. So then they're, they're not adding to demand, but they're having, adding an equivalent amount to supply. Um, where I think foreign investment has an impact is that it changes the nature of what we build. So a lot of the apartments built in central Melbourne or, or probably central Sydney and Brisbane as well have been built as investment, uh, investment vehicles for overseas investors. And that means we get a particular type of accommodation, mm-hmm. um, high rise apartments that are not, um, econ- and, um, energy efficient, yep. uh, that are not, af- not affordable for low income earners because they have very high running costs in terms of heating, cooling, and also in terms of body corporate fees and things like that. And also change the cityscape so that we get, you know, overshadowing wind tunnels. So um, I think that foreign investment skews the nature of what gets built rather than that increasing prices or uh, reducing supply. Yeah. Turn to immigration. That's that's um, different because, of course, you know, every time you add someone to the population, and indeed, you know, the birth rate. Company too. Mm-hmm. If more people without more housing, then that will push up the cost of housing. There's no doubt about it. And, and yet we know that the two don't have to go together because in the Menzies era, as I say, we had a massive increase in population from immigration and a baby boom, mm-hmm. and we had a dramatic rise in the number of people who owned their own homes. So we obviously built a lot of housing at that time yep. and kept up with um so, so immigration is a factor, but as I say, it's just one factor amongst many. Low interest rates, investor demand, uh, negative gearing, um, wealth mm-hmm. that also house prices. Um, and we should remember too that quite a lot of immigration these days is temporary migration, yep. which is another subject I've written about, and that can go down as well as up. So we have at the moment something like five hundred thousand international students in Australia, students and student graduates. Mm-hmm. And um, governments made it harder for them to continue on to become permanent residents now after after they finish study. Yeah. So we may see that those numbers go down. And there are a lot of international students, for example, living in the centre of Melbourne, either in rented apartments or in um, student-specific mm-hmm. accommodation. And if the numbers go down, we may find we've got empty apartments and empty student accommodation. Yeah. Okay, um, so this is a podcast that looks at issues in the long term. And what I'm getting from uh, from our interview today, that there are many different factors in the mix related to Australia's housing market. And you also uh, mentioned a little bit about challenging the idea of the Australian dream of owning your own home. So I wondered, looking into the long term and casting your eye there, what Potentially not an ideal, but what would you see as a better housing market in Australia? What, what sort of design would you give that? So it would be a market where being a renter, you didn't get penalised for being a renter, where renting was a legitimate choice mm-hmm. and one that wasn't wasn't a second best option or a last resort option compared to home ownership. Okay. And so that would be a system in which we taxed housing differently. Um, so my suggestion, my recommendation is one in which we have a broad-based property tax instead of stamp duty. Mm-hmm. 
So there's lots of reasons for this. At the moment, you know, stamp duty, people will be aware, is something you pay when you buy a house. So you pay it when you can least afford it. It's an extra, you know, depending where you are, $10,000, dollars $50,000 or more on top of what you're already spending to buy, buy the property. A broad-based property tax would spread that out over time. It'd be more like paying your rates. You'd pay mm-hmm. every quarter or every year, you'd pay a few thousand dollars. And so there's a benefit there um, in make, making it easier for home buyers. But also the other benefit is it doesn't lock people into housing because at the moment, um, say you're living in a big house and you think, well, I don't need this big house anymore. My kids have left home. Mm-hmm. I'd like to move somewhere smaller. And then I look around and think, oh, if I'm going to move, I'm going to have to pay all this stamp duty. You know, that's just money down the drain. Yeah. Whereas if it was a broad-based property tax paid year by year, I think, oh, if I move somewhere smaller, I'm going to pay less property tax. And therefore, I'd have an incentive to do it. And I'd free up housing that's underutilized because there's just me or me and my partner rattling around in a family home, you know, for someone who can use it more more efficiently and more effectively. It would also mean I'd be more likely to move city to a job where my, my skills are better yep. used. So there's a productivity gain um, for the economy from this too. So economists and the housing industry and the welfare sector all agree stamp duties are very uh, it's a kind of perverse tax, mm-hmm. and it would be better to have a broad-based property tax. And then also that would mean we'd have less incentive to keep investing in housing and borrow so much money to buy housing because the more expensive the housing you buy, the bigger the tax bill you're going to get over time. And so it would create a kind of discouragement to constantly investing in our housing. I mean, you, you could do other things too, like make it, you know, put the include the value of, of your primary residence as part of the consideration of whether or not you get the pension. I think that's a perfectly reasonable option. But basically you'd you'd make hand, renting and house owning more equal. So people who want to rent, who don't want to buy a house, yep. aren't forced into a kind of yep. second class status uh, yeah. if they if they're not well I mean, people who rent at the top of the market they're fine. But but, but people you know, um, on medium or low incomes, um, struggle to find decent accommodation. And, and above all, I guess my vision would be one in which we don't treat housing as an asset, but we treat it as a fundamental need. Mm-hmm. You know, we go back to the idea of housing as something that everyone needs. Secure, affordable housing is essential to well-being. I mean, if, if you don't have a secure, affordable place to put your head down at night, um, you can't care for your kids properly. You can't keep your mental and physical health in a good shape so that you can be a productive member of society and go out to work. You know, housing is really an essential. It's a, uh, as a, one of the people I quote in the book who's a, who's a developer and, you know, a very profit-oriented capitalist, mm-hmm. but he says, he recognises, he says housing is an essential social infrastructure. So we have to invest in it. We have to make sure that we invest in housing, particularly for, for those who cannot afford it in the current market. Yeah. I did have one final question on an issue that is popping up all the time in the, in the news currently, and that's the cooling off of our property markets, which seems to have been driven by Australia's banking regulator placing more scrutiny on, on property loans. What kind of threat do you see this as posing to the Aussie housing market? Well, I see it as a good mm-hmm. thing that prices are going down. Because the prices were ridiculous and massively <laughs> overrated. 
the threat is whether the deflating of the bubble uh, becomes popping of the bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a threat because if, um, if, if property prices, real estate prices were to crash, that would presage uh, a major recession and mass unemployment, yep. or it would be the result of a major recession and mass unemployment, and that would be damaging to everyone, and the people who'd suffer the most would be the people at the bottom. Um, so I hope that the property market doesn't crash, but I hope that it keeps going down slowly mm-hmm. and and doesn't, I mean, the, the worst thing in my view would be if this is just a brief pause and then we resume the kind of trajectory we've seen for the past 20 years. Um, you know, even, even in places like Perth, the market is still ahead of where it was. It's been going down for four years in Perth, but it's still ahead of where it got to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still ahead of, of where, where it was before the previous boom. And if we went back to another boom, uh, then we're just going to exacerbate the growing inequality in Australia, which mm-hmm. is an inequality between those who were lucky enough to invest in property when it was affordable and can then invest in more because they have an asset to draw against, and those who aren't in the property market, uh, who are renters, who are increasingly penalised for for not being rich. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can see the growth in inequality in in terms of renters and owners. Um, and if we saw a return to rapid real estate inflation, then we're going to see that inequality exacerbated. So, yeah, my hope would be that the gradual decline in property prices continues, then levels out um, and, and doesn't, doesn't grow in the crazy way that it did in the past. Okay, well, I'm on board for that as well. Thank you very much for your time today, Peter. Thanks, Yana. It's a real pleasure. That was Peter Mayers, author of No Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis, out now through text publishing. Whether you're keen on renting or would prefer to own your own place, all Australians do deserve a home, and Peter has outlined some ways we can make that a reality. Government policies up until now have favoured home ownership and investment in multiple properties, and I don't think we should bemoan those who've made the most of that. But it's worth now reflecting on a system that does shut people out of having a place to stay. Okay, that's it from me. I'll leave you with a song from Melbourne musician Candy. It's a track titled Apartment in the City, and you can find it on his Bandcamp as a pay-what-you-want download. Thanks for your time, and thanks for listening.